How did a climb in the Swiss Alps make your day at the beach much safer? And how do statues of men on horses tell us how they died? Hmm. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this half hour of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity with fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. Okay, Marcia, so how did a climb in the Swiss Alps make your day at the beach better and safer? Well, did they find some kind of element that floats and that people use today in their life jackets or... Well, that's a good suggestion. Mm-hmm. Had something to do with the gear or something up there. Uh, uh-huh. It did have something to do with something that happened on the mountains. Something on the mountain. No, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Tell me. It's because a mountain climber, a Swiss mountain climber, invented one of the first sunscreens. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. You think of the sunscreen for the beach, but climbing at high altitudes can expose you to, oh, yeah. you know, very dangerous rays, too. Absolutely. And Britannica.com reports that one day in 1938, Franz Greiter of ah, Switzerland. Anzi. While climbing in the Swiss Alps, he got a nasty sunburn. Well, guess what? He just happened to be a chemistry student, uh-huh. and he thought there must be some way to shield his exposure to excess sunlight. So eight years later, he launched it, one of the world's first effective sunscreens. Its name, Glacier Cream. Oh, really? And it's still being sold today. Under that name? Yeah. I'll be done. Now, there were other sunscreens invented at the time. Some say the first one was actually invented by a a chemist from Australia, Milton Blake, in 1932. And then during World War II, a GI who was in the South Pacific, where a lot of American uh, soldiers and sailors were getting sunburned out there, he came up with a formula for the U.S. Army, which later was commercialized by Coppertone. Okay. So that was another one. They were one of the first big ones too, right? Yes. But back to our mountain climber, Franz Greiter. He not only invented one of the sunscreens, 40 years later in 1975, he introduced something else even more important. Um, Flippers. No. (laughs) The sun protection factor, the SPF index. He came up with that. That's the global standard for measuring sunscreen protection. I wonder how he did that. Well, he worked with other calculations of other chemists and people over time. He Mm -hmm. became a chemist. So, Well, today when you shop for sunscreen or sunblocker, look for the SPF factor, right? We all do. I always do, yeah. And that's how a climb in the Swiss Alps made your day at the beach much, much safer. Huh. And I heard uh, somebody, uh, some doctor on the radio said, um, you don't need anything over 40 SPF because it won't do any good. Mm. Just go up to 40. And mm. I got one that's for my face is 90, so I guess <laughs> it's superfluous. Okay. I can't even see your face, Marcia. Put that thing on, and it's just you become invisible. Maybe that's best. Okay, Bob. <laughs> I, found, I found this fascinating. How do statues of men, and I, they're usually men, I can't think of too many women, mm-hmm. on horses tell us how they died? Boy, that's interesting because they're all of those Civil War statues. Uh-huh. It has something to do with the stirrups. Their feet in the stirrups or not? Oh, and they're not hanging down, <laughs> dragging yeah. on. I, I don't know. Ground. What is it? Okay. Statues of horse and rider are usually monarchs or great warriors, 
and are found in places of honor, like uh, downtown Wisconsin Avenue. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. In the middle of the street. Yes. The tradition is that if the horse is depicted with all four hooves on the ground, the rider died of natural causes. Oh. If one hoof is raised, the guy died from wounds incurred during battle. And if he's up in the air with two hooves in the air, the rider portrayed in the statue died on the battlefield. So if a horse is raised up like silver, like the Lone Ranger's silver, that means the rider died in battle. If their two hooves are up. If the two hooves are up, the front hooves are up. Yeah. If the one hoof is up, what does that mean? They he, he got hurt, but he died later from oh, wounds. Oh, I see. And then if the uh, if the horse is all four feet on the ground, he just died of natural causes. Right. Or something else right. other than the battle. His wife bonged him over the head or something. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh-huh. I never knew that. I didn't either. I will look for that. All right. Now, here I have a question about war for you. How did time zones botch a famous Cold War military operation? Uh, well, obviously, they said, okay, at o, you know, at 0600, we'll uh, commence on the battlefield, except they were in different time zones, so they all showed up at different times. Yeah, there was a screw-up. Yeah. Do you have any idea what that might have been? That was a snafu. Yes, it was a snafu. <laughs> uh, do I have any idea what? What it was? It was in 1961. Bay of Pigs. That's it. That's right. That was the Kennedy administration's effort to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba by backing Cuban mercenaries or revolutionaries. Uh And the operation had been in planning since the Eisenhower administration. But it's believed it failed in part because the supporting air cover from Nicaragua arrived an hour later than scheduled (laughs) due to time Time zone snafus. Yeah. According to Britannica.com, today it's believed the lateness of the planes was due to a planning Let's say it together. A snafu. Yes. <laughs> Situation normal, all, all frigged up. Are, yes. <laughs> the result of Nicaragua and Cuba being in different time zones. So yeah. the air support took off an hour after the invaders began landing on the beaches. Wow. Which well, was would, disaster then. Yeah. Can you imagine uh, D-Day? <laughs> oh, yeah. If everyone wasn't coordinated. Oh, oh, here comes France two days later. There you go. <laughs> okay. Bob, you ever think about what's the average size of a meteor? The average size of a meteor? Yeah. You can compare it to something like a building or whatever. I'll compare it to the size of a football field. Okay. Wow, that's pretty big. Well, the majority range in size from a small pebble down to a grain of sand. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. A small pebble is the normal size, the average size? A grain of sand is even more common. Wow. And they weigh less than one to two grams. Uh, Yeah. I always think of meteors as these big, huge things, too. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Kind of hard to do a Hollywood movie about something (laughs) as... A grain of sand well, heading towards the White House. Yeah, you know? I think you're onto something there. <laughs> That's why we have so many misconceptions about so many things. Oh, Lord. Well, there's a meteor heading towards the White House, yeah. and it's the size of a grain of sand. Yeah. <laughs> this is very common. Doesn't have the same impact. Okay. Hey, speaking of buildings, the Bastille was a notorious what in France? Oh, the Bastille. Bastille. The building, or was it a barricade? Building. Building. Used for? For? Prison. For armaments? No. It was a prison, Marcia. I thought you knew this. Bastille days. Well, if you thought I knew this, why did you ask? Well, I thought you'd come up with the answer and we'd both look good. But, well, (laughs) only one of us did. All right. Bastille originally meant fortress or fortification in France. 
and the famous Bastille was a fortress built on the eastern gates of Paris in the 14th century. But 400 years later, it had become a prison. The Bastille imprisoned the political enemies of France's crown. What famous American was given the key to the Bastille after it was destroyed in the French Revolution? Really? A famous American was given the key to the Bastille after it was destroyed. This would have been the late 18th century, okay. oh. 1700s. It was seized by rioting citizens July 14, 1789. It was an iconic moment in the French Revolution. Who was given the key to the Bastille after it was destroyed? <sighs> famous American. Founding father guy? Yes, it was. Was it Ben? No, it was, was George it Washington. Oh, George got it. Yes, because the Marquis de Lafayette, who yeah. aided the U.S. during yeah. the Revolution, later played a part in the French Revolution. So he gave George Washington a key to the Bastille after it was destroyed. George loved Lafayette like a son. He did. Yeah, he never had a son, so Lafayette was it. His little French son. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Branding, Bob. And the cult of personality often work hand-in-hand in in today's world, don't they? Yes, they do. Okay. This religious gentleman from the 1600s is considered to have invented marketing by lending his name to a product he helped to develop. Who is he? Wow. (laughs) 1600s and a product. Yeah. I'm trying to think the other people from that time. I'm thinking of... uh, well, Shakespeare, he was writing then, and then this we had is the someone you'll know. We had the Gutenberg of the Gutenberg Press. Of course, that's it, the Gutenberg <laughs> Press. Uh, I don't know the answer, Marsh. Okay, I'll give you some hints. Okay. Okay. He was French. He was religious. He was 19 years old, and a monk. A monk. A monk. A 19-year-old French monk from the 1600s, and I should know his name. Yes, you I'm, do. Now I'm sounding like you. <laughs> Pardon me? Okay. Uh, Pardon me? Who is that? Dom Perignon. Oh, Dom Perignon, of course, (laughs) the champagne. Yes, a Benedictine monk whose order was in the Champagne region of France. He didn't invent it exactly, but he perfected it into what we consider champagne today. He did it with some kind of double fermentation. Wow. Uh, And I like this. On tasting his first glass of true champagne, he declared... Come, for I am drinking stars. <laughs> Any, anyway, the beverage was much sought after because they knew this guy and what he did. And people knew who he was. So he decided to name it after himself. And it sold at twice the price as the competitors. <laughs> well, it still sells very expensively. Yeah. Dom Perignon, very expensive. It is. Model. In 1937, Moet and Chandon bought Dom Perignon brand. And to this day, it is high-priced and often breaks bidding records in auction. Wow. What travesty did you and I commit with Dom Perignon, Bob? It was in the hospital room with Chelsea. It was in that um, a unicorn, some kind of big unicorn. And yeah, had there Dom was a, Peri- Like a saddle, saddle and yeah. Dom Perignon. Yeah. What travesty did we, what we, did we commit? Do? Uh, we did it with the sports writers at my newspaper. We drank Dom Perignon in little paper cups. Oh, my God. I didn't remember that. <laughs> you don't? Oh, no. I forgot. Wow. I never forgot that. They were there, and you can only <laughs> keep that bubbly so long. And none of us probably had it much after that. No, I think none of us had ever had anything that expensive to drink. It was probably wasted on all of us at the time. (laughs) All right, Marsha, did you know... I don't think so. Did you know banning clotheslines is banned in Vermont? Apparently it was a problem we didn't hear about. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Well, it's illegal for anyone in Vermont to ban the use of clotheslines. Now, as we always say, there's always a reason for a law. Why would you need a law about banning clotheslines? I don't know. Well... (laughs) You happen to know. 
This law is actually from this century. It's not from a century before. It was passed in 2009. It's common for homeowners associations to ban homeowners from solar drying. That's what they call it. With some calling it uh, unsightly. But not any longer in Vermont. State Senator Richard McCormick inserted the law into an energy bill because he had long sought to protect this very green way to dry your clothes. Now, the law doesn't apply to patio railings in apartments or condos, so Vermonters will want to stay on the safe side and use actual clotheslines. <laughs> but you cannot ban a clothesline oh. because it is a green thing to do. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Okay, Bob, how fast do you and I and the Earth travel around the sun? How fast do we travel around the sun? Uh-huh. You mean in terms of miles per hour, uh-huh. not days. Right. I can tell you, 365 days we travel that around the correct. sun. That is correct. That's correct. But no, I don't know what the velocity of our travel is. Miles per hour. Take a guess. 24,600 miles per hour. Well, that's pretty fast. But right now, we are traveling 67,000 miles per hour. Wow. 18.5 miles a second. Ain't gravity grand? <laughs> For you and me. I'm surprised my hat doesn't blow off. I know. Isn't that nuts when you think (laughs) about it? 67,000 miles an hour. Right at this second, we're traveling around the sun. Put it in perspective, the Mars Pathfinder went to Mars at 75,000 miles per hour. Well, okay. We're a little sluggish compared to them. (laughs) (laughs) I have some uh, interesting stuff about cats. Okay. Both of our children have cats. One has cats and dogs. Mm -hmm. But a recent New York Times sketchbook feature showcased famous authors and their cats. Did you know that Charles Dickens had his cat Bob's paw stuffed (laughs) and made into a letter opener after he died? Well, that's very clever. Creepy, but clever. And you can see it at the New York Public Library. Mark Twain had 11 cats at his Connecticut farm. Wow. One of them, Bambino, went missing. He took out an advertisement and offered a $5 reward. So that was was probably big money back then. Charles Bukowski had a one-eared tomcat named Butch Van Gogh Artaud Bukowski. I get, yeah, <laughs> I get the Van Gogh. <laughs> and Edgar Allan Poe had a cat named Katerina. One of his scariest stories is the black cat. He once said, I wish I could write as mysterious as a cat. Hmm. Interesting. I think it's time for a break. No, more cat stories. <laughs> All right. We've got more cats coming up. Okay. Here on The Off-Ramp. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marsha Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Robert Rickman, host of OK Boomer. Yes, we like to entertain you with colorful features, boomer history, and brain fog, but we also tell you about serious stuff such as... The amount of money taken in from property taxes continues to rise. The actual percentage allocated to senior centers is declining. We search all week for news boomers need to know and make it available to you on OK Boomer. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. OK Boomer. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We do this every week for the Cedarbrook Public Library and for its internet radio station. After that, it goes out on podcast platforms around the world. I don't know what that was, but... (laughs) What author's home and museum is today home to 60 cats? Famous author... 60 cats, again. His home is in the United States, but it's a very tip of the United States. Southern tip. Oh, it wouldn't be... um... Uh, what's his name? The Miss the the. Uh, He's got a beard like me yeah, right now. White yeah. white beard. What's his name? Is it? The, yes, it's what's his name? It's Absolutely. It's, ding, 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 yeah, ding. it's coming. You know, Carrie, right? Wrote Carrie. No, he didn't. No. Oh, I don't know then. He has a home in Key West and a museum. 
Yeah. Ernest Hemingway. Oh, he's not alive. I didn't say he was alive. I thought he was. I said, what author's home and museum is home to 60 cats? Not too many authors who are alive have a museum. That should have been a, that should have been a trigger for You're you. You're getting on my nerves okay. today, Bob. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, guess what? Around 60 cats live there, many of them descendants of Snow White, a polydactyl cat a ship's captain gave to Hemingway. What is a polydactic animal? Uh, multiple feet? More than the normal number of toes or fingers. Oh, okay. So today on Hemingway's Grounds, you'll find 60 six-toed cats. Really? Each one of those cats has six toes. Isn't that oh, wait, interesting? today? Yeah. They're descendants of that cat that he was given. They all have six toes, all well, 60. That's pretty fascinating. I thought it was fascinating, which is why I brought it to the show. <laughs> that came from a sketchbook, Cat People, by Bob Eckstein and Nava Atlas in the New York Times Book Review. All right, Bob. Can you name the sunniest city in the world? The sunniest city in the world. Mm-hmm. That is in the mountains somewhere, isn't it? Nope. In like Pakistan. Nope. It's that part of the world, though. It's in the United States. Like I thought. <laughs> it's, Gee. It's Yuma, Arizona. Yes. I knew that was the sunniest city in the United States. It's also the world. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I double-checked it because I found that hard to believe. But uh, in terms of 90% annual sunshine, the distinction goes to Yuma, a southwestern Arizona city on the Mexican border. It has 330 days of sun and 4,015 hours of sun a year. Wow. Yuma is not only the sunniest place in the U.S., but the world. On average, the sun shines there for 90% of the time. Isn't that amazing? And even the darkest month of December still sees 82% of daylight hours. Wow. The second and third sunniest cities in the United States. Do you want to guess what those two are? Second and third sunniest cities in the United States. After Yuma comes. Orlando or Uh, Miami, maybe? No, neither one. Is it in Florida? No, neither one. Okay, are they in Arizona? No. Are they in Alaska? No. Okay, that'd be something different. So I'll do that in. (laughs) Sure I, I don't know. Where are they? Okay, Redding, California. Okay. Redding has 88% annual sunshine, and the third, Las Vegas, Nevada, 85% sunshine. Well, I believe a that year. having been there several times. Yeah, yeah. it's always toasty. Mm. It's always toasty. <laughs> yeah, crazy and toasty. More questions on imports and exports, Marcia. I know this sounds like a glaringly dull subject, but actually kind of interesting here. Hello, wake up. <laughs> okay, Marcia, what is the top food export of the United States? Oh, gosh. Well, I will say uh, wheat. There are many. There are many. There are wheat. wheat, There's corn. corn. Meat. No. None of those? None of those. Fruit? Some kind of fruit? No, it's a kind of bean, Marsh. Kind of bean. Well, it's not the lima bean. No, it's the soy bean. That's why I got that in the fridge right now. That's the top export of the United States in food. It's used in food products like tofu, a lot of dairy and meat substitutes, and it's an alternate ingredient in many industrial products made of rubber, plastic, adhesives, and more. Did you know that? No. Yeah, soybean shows up in all kinds of things. It's good for you, too. Well, not if you eat the steering wheel of your car, which might have (laughs) soybeans. China is the biggest importer of U.S. soybeans, so that is our biggest market. They import $18 billion worth of our soybeans, and we only ship $35 billion. So more than half of the soybeans the United States produces go to China. Now, corn is next. 
Okay. That's the second one. And then nuts is the third. Nuts. Nuts, like pecans, almonds, walnuts, and pistachios. They're the major agricultural U.S. export. I'll be darned. So we are the biggest supplier in the global nut market. <gasps> Did you know that? I know. Right here in the studio, we have our <laughs> share of nuts. You've got your nuts. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Bob, you ready? Yes. Where will you find the world's longest golf course? The longest golf course? Uh-huh. You mean the longest fairway or the whole, actually the, the length of it, huh? Yeah, uh-huh. Is it what, like two miles long, three miles long, something like that? No. How long is it? 848 miles. What? Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow, where is that? It's in Australia. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That's an 18-hole par 72 course that spans two Australian states. Starting in Kalugari, West Australia, the Nullarbor links feature one hole at each participating town or roadhouse along the highway. And to finish 848 miles away in Seduna, South Australia, the course incorporates some rugged terrain and you can hit kangaroos and wombats along the way. Golfers who set out for this course should set aside four days to complete the entire course. Clubs, I think it'd be longer than that. Yeah, I would too. So can you hear the wife or the husband saying, honey, I'm going out to play the course today. I'll see you at the end of the week. Jeez. God. That's just nuts. That is nuts. 848 miles. Okay, well. <laughs> All right, transportation, motor trivia, Marsha. Right. Motor trivia. What kind of motor transportation did Coney Island, New York, give the world? Now, we don't ever think of Coney Island, New York, as being a motor transportation hub. You know, they had the boardwalk there. They had uh, rides. Yeah, I was going to say, they had the Ferris wheel. They had nothing to do with either one of those. Okay. So what kind of motor transportation did Coney Island, New York, give the world the first of its kind trolley? was installed there? A trolley? A little a little train car? No. Uh, a, a little boat? No. Uh, a bicycle? No. A motor scooter? No. <laughs> An airplane? <laughs> I think I can give you the answer. Thank now. you, Bob. It's a little thing called the escalator. Oh. The first escalator was installed at the old Iron Pier on Coney Island, New York, it was patented in March 1892 by Jesse W. Reno, and it was called the Reno Inclined Elevator. It was a continuous inclined conveyor belt made up of grooved wooden slats with rubber cleats, and it was powered by an electric motor ah. at a speed of about a mile and a half per hour. Those things turned out all right. This was more of a people mover than a step escalator, yeah. but it was the predecessor of all the step and escalators. And what was the year? That was in 1892. Okay. It's interesting to find out the dates that these things were begun. It is, isn't it? Okay, Bob, what major Jesus feature what? is missing in today's painting of the Last Supper, which was present in the original painting? What major feature of Jesus is missing in today's Last Supper paintings versus the original? Uh-huh. It was in the original. Uh-huh. But they took it out of all the others. They didn't take it out. It's just not there anymore. A glass of water. <laughs> no, that's not it. It was a name tag, Jesus. <laughs> no, that wasn't it. A nope. place setting. Nope. I, don't, I don't know the answer, Mike. His feet, Bob. <laughs> wow, his feet? This particular detail was lost in 1652 when the installation of a doorway 
where the mural was painted, led to removing the portion that included Jesus' sandals. Hmm. So they put the doorway over the bottom of the painting. Oh, really? Yes, and it's still there. It's in this church. But efforts to digitally restore the Last Supper to its original form have recently been made possible and include digitally, if you want to look at it on your computer, his feet and also a spilled salt shaker on the table. A salt shaker. You know, it's interesting because I think I just would focus on the table and up, you know. Yeah. What's on the table, what's yeah. above, never thinking of their feet below. Yeah. Huh. Apparently, Judas's coin purse is gone, too. That's been stolen. <laughs> this is interesting. If you like to see the work today, you won't be going to a regular museum. It hangs in the Santa Maria della Gazi, on whose walls it was originally painted, probably between 1495 and 1498. Mm-hmm. The convent wasn't exactly built with large crowds in mind, so today... Only 1,300 people are allowed to see it each day. That's a lot. That's how many people still yeah, show up. They have to keep moisture out of there, you know, yeah. human moisture out of and there. And only 25 people can go in to view it at a time. So they have to monitor this all day, every day at this little church. Now, Marsha, I have a question for you regarding the names of months. You know, we were doing this as the year months. went along. Yes. We did all the months up to June. Oh. So now, All right, I summer, bet we're going to do July. July and August. <laughs> all so right. So where does the name July for the month of July come from? Julius Caesar. That's exactly right. Yeah. He counted among his accomplishments the Julian calendar. Right. It would be nice to name things after yourself, it is. wouldn't it? Yeah. Let's call it the Bob calendar. <laughs> yeah. August. August. August was it's also... Augustus Caesar. That is exactly right, who is a grand-nephew to Julius. Did you know that? I didn't know the lineage. Yeah, he came after Julius, so he was a grand-nephew to Julius Caesar. Okay, so two Caesars, like Marsha May, we named the month of May after... Correct. <laughs> right. Does this mean we hold our breath and you'll give us September and October in the future? Yes, I will. Okay. Give us time to Google it. Okay, Bob. What? No. When blindfolded, what are humans incapable of doing with their bodies? When blindfolded? Uh-huh. uh-huh. So the blindness takes away an aspect of our bodies. Uh-huh. It's an ability. An ability. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Can't scratch your back. I don't know what the answer is. We can't walk in a straight line. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So we have to use our eyes in order to walk in the straight yeah. line. Yeah. Well, I, I know I do, but uh, I didn't know that was true for everyone. Yeah. Inevitably, we become a directional mess, turning in tight loops. <laughs> we got to try this later. <laughs> Many studies in the past century have cataloged this phenomena. Without some form of reference, such as a mountain, a building, or even the sun, Humans are incapable of walking in a straight line no matter how hard we try, whether we're blindfolded or just lost in the forest. That's interesting. And while the theory explains why we do this, scientists aren't sure of the biological how. This straight line continuum remains one of the many mysteries of the human brain and body. Well, it's simple. You can't see it. Okay. I <laughs> always it, love that when they do. This just still doesn't make sense. It kind of like makes the, sense to me. Okay, Bob. All right, you have a thought for the day. A couple thoughts for the day. Abraham Lincoln, most folks are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. Well, that's true, isn't it? It is. I like that. I think you generate your own happiness. Yes, and on happiness, Oscar Wilde, who had a different look at things. (laughs) A very different look at things. (laughs) Some cause happiness wherever they go. Others, whenever they go. (laughs) Well, that's you, (laughs) Marcia. 
Whenever you go somewhere, you cause happiness. Oh, you, was that, does that mean death? Is that what that meant? No. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. It means, they, it means they cause happiness when they leave the room. Oh, I didn't mean that. Honest <laughs> to God. Okay, let me get out of here. This is <laughs> this this show hasn't gone well for you, Bob. Oh dear. Well, it would go better if we had people who would uh, rate and review us on their oh. podcast sites. Okay. We would we would love that if you could. If you would rate and review us. If you want to say Marsha is so much better than Bob, that's Absolutely. okay. Absolutely. You're welcome too. and free to do that. Okay. <laughs> that's it for today. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marsha Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.